0: Hi everyone, welcome to the Planet Podcast and this is a very special uh, Planet Podcast because although we will talk about all kinds of subjects that we have covered in the past like climate change and water and environment, we have a very new and different approach and that is because we have uh, a very special guest tonight, Erica Geis, who... uh, recently wrote a book uh, water always wins it's about thriving in an age of drought and deluge welcome erica thank you did i say the title right the water always wins
1: <laughs> that's right
0: yeah wonderful it's i i love the title of of the book um as a bit of background to um especially to to uh, the listeners that are here now live Uh, we talk about in this podcast about climate and environment and we often talk about history history of the town where i'm living in here this small town on the island in the netherlands that i often write about Uh, and we speak a lot about water which is obvious if you live on an island that you speak about water especially an island in a country that is basically at uh, at the level of sea level we are uh, large parts of the island are below sea level because these are the low countries this is the netherlands so we've spoken about water we've spoken about drought we spoke about sea level rise and its connection to ice melting in antarctica and the ice sheets that are melting in 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 greenland we spoke about its impact on geopolitics And um, as you know, this summer I promised that I would write a lot about uh, the island where I'm back now. Instead of being in Canada, where I live in the winter, my summer residence seems to be this island in the Netherlands, with the impossible name to pronounce, Schouwen-Duiveland. Um, the fight between people and water is a continuous, continuous theme in, um, in the kind of uh, global issues that we discuss. Um, In this podcast. But also. It's a theme that always comes back. On this island. So. um, Just the streets around me. Where I'm living now. Have interesting names. There's the anchor road. There's the ship's side. There's the sluice pass. Is that a sluice? I mean like a lock you know for ships. But there's no water here. This is. um, This all refers to a small stream that used to be exactly where my house is and um, it was called the Amr and it doesn't really exist anymore but the ta- name of the town Burg Hamstede, Ham refers back to this old name Amrstede, the city the city, Stede, Stad the city on the Amer, Hamstede um, and you know what the river is back not far away from here, this windmill some of you that follow me on social media, will recognize this huge white windmill that often figures in in the kind of things that I post on social media. And right next to that uh, windmill, a, a very small stream came back, back in the old riverbed, when this much bigger stream used to be here, when there were actually ships sailing there. And now they put a sign back there saying this is the armor. It's about one meter wide. You can step over it. But the river came back. So water has... A kind of will of its own, and if I'm not mistaken, Erica, um, that's where you should come in. Is that isn't that the kind of thing that uh, that is sent a central theme in your book?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, water in in Western development, we tend to think of water as a commodity or a threat, which leads to our attempts to control it. But, um, in fact, water is an entity with its own agency, and it definitely uh, finds its, its way, and a lot of our development um, ends up ultimately being somewhat futile. Like, um, we've actually filled in 87% of the world's wetlands since 1700, and oftentimes those are areas are the first to flood in a big rain. Um, There are people whose houses were built atop creeks, and those creeks bubble up in the winter. So um, water continues to pursue its paths, um, regardless of our attempts to control it. And there's a field of historical ecology that a lot of the water detectives in my book make use of. And basically, um, yeah, it was a very common pattern of development to... Um, put creeks and pipes and pave over them, build on top of them, fill in wetlands. So um, these folks are trying to figure out what water did before we subverted it and to map that on the current city. And by doing that, they look for opportunities to return space to water, um, to collaborate with water. And, um, you know, our attitude of trying to control water is not a universal human instinct. There are many, many cultures around the world that view water as a friend or a relative, and they work to collaborate with water instead. And um, the people in my book, practitioners of what I'm calling the slow water movement, are all, um, you know, they bring curiosity to water. They're asking, what does water want? And they're trying to accommodate water uh, to whatever extent possible within our human habitats.
0: Yeah, fascinating. I I read that in New Zealand and quite a few other countries nowadays. I think New Zealand was the first that actually gave legal rights to the river.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean... You know, in the United States, we've given corporations human personhood, so it's not that much of a stretch. It <laughs> sounds uh... all about these two countries, to be honest. <laughs> um, yeah, so this this rights of nature movement, which includes rights of rivers and rights of wetlands, dates back to, well, first I should say, in many indigenous cultures, there are legal rights for, for water. Um, but in in Western society the movement to reclaim rights for nature goes back to uh, the 1970s. There was a famous case, you know, that asked, do trees have standing? Um, And the idea is uh, that natural entities like rivers, uh, you know, they don't have a voice uh, that we're familiar with. And so uh, humans have to speak for them. But um, some of the rights that have been awarded to rivers in New Zealand, um, India, Canada, uh, parts of the United States by Indigenous tribes, are um, like the right to exist, the right to have relations with other entities, the rocks, the critters, um, the right uh, to continue to flow. Um, there's there's about nine or ten of them, uh, and it's definitely uh, a way of thinking about water that recognizes that um, it, it has its own agency and it should be allowed to do its own thing. That's not that we can't use it, but um, that we need to have more of an attitude of reciprocity. You know, For it to take care of us, we need to take care of it as well.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah wonderful. Yeah, I think Canada also just quite recently joined mm-hmm. this group and had the first river yeah. Uh, that they they recognized with, we, we recently did a series of podcasts about pop music, which was completely different from the kind of environmental kind of themes that we normally do, but there we also spoke about Pete Seeger and uh his campaigning for the hudson river uh-huh. uh, which which is 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 typically also something like that just just respect a river and and and, um, and and make use of it so it's it 's funny to how all these kind of different themes that we 've been working on in the past half year how they how they all uh, come together. So, uh, is this particular theme of um, kind of more kind of respecting the water, respecting the river, and 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 its its history and a kind of historic rights and historic being as um, as a, as a river is? Is that becoming more important in this this day and age? Is it is it something we should focus our attention on right yeah. now?
1: Uh, I think so, yes. Um, You know, there's been a marked uptick in the frequency and intensity of flooding and droughts that we're seeing around the world. And partly that's because of climate change. Of course, um, with every degree Celsius warming, the atmosphere can hold 7 percent more water vapor. So that's why more water is evaporated up out of the soils and the plants, you know, making drier areas drier, and why we're seeing these big deluges. But a key message in my book is that um, it's not just climate change that's bringing these water disasters. it's also our development choices. Um, we've made ourselves quite brittle by trying to control water. So um, you know the extent to which we can um, work with water, uh, return some of these kind of buffer zones. You know, a floodplain exists to absorb floods. <laughs> yeah. So when we build on a floodplain or when we grow crops on a floodplain, it's, it's not surprising that the water is going to want to return there.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's um, something that we're working on here on a lot of examples of this island because I love this island so much that I come back here every summer. Um, But here in the in the southern part of the island, uh, that's an area where we've historically we've lost 12 villages to the water. only one church tower of one particular village is still standing, and uh, they, they kind of kept it going as a kind of uh, light uh, lighthouse uh, for, for the shipping. Um, but in that area, which is just, just a half an hour walk from here, we are recreating wetlands because the, the birds that fly all the way from Siberia over the Netherlands to uh, northern Africa. Uh, these birds and also all kinds of other birds they need a stop over here and uh, it's a fascinating place where because the, the depth of the water changes everywhere in these wetlands the saltiness of the, the salinity of the water is also changing everywhere. and each specific um, bird type of bird uh wants a specific salinity for where they find their food and where they breed and where they put their eggs, etc. And it's it's always filled with people that love to, to watch all bird watchers are are mm-hmm. uh, loving it here. And I, I believe what you're saying is also um we've you you mentioned the number of wetlands that we have destroyed and it's it's also that they they often have a function again
1: Sorry, I lost the sound there. Sorry. Uh, can you hear me? I can't hear you. Yeah,
0: I was. Oh, there you are. There you ah, are. There I am. Okay, sorry guys. Sorry, um, I lost
1: about thirty seconds to a minute of what you yeah, were saying I oh, heard these, about these, the I, wetlands I, and the birds and. the yeah, specific I cottages. said I
0: said brilliant things, but no,
1: <laughs> nobody could
0: hear me. <laughs> this was the bright moment where I said <laughs> something really, really beautiful and interesting. No, actually, I. Um, uh, I went to Twitter to promote this a little bit more and then I forgot to switch back on my phone from oh, Twitter okay. to here and then it <laughs> shut off the sound. So no, I was mentioning um, the, um, uh, the 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 wetlands but also the mangrove forest that mm-hmm. plays such mm-hmm. an important role in, in filtering the water but also in protection against sea level rise, etc. Yeah. I think there must be yeah. many examples of that as well. It's at the end of the rivers you, you'll, you'll often find them.
1: Yeah, what's so amazing about all of these kinds of coastal habitats, whether it's tidal marshes, mangrove forests, even things that are in the water like eel grass beds and coral reefs, um, you know, these protect our coasts. So when we destroy them, uh, you know, we take that protection away. And um, some of these ecosystems have really incredible powers. Like I've written about um, the tidal marshes in San Francisco Bay. And, um, you know, they can actually grow vertically with sea level rise to continue to protect us if they have enough time, sediment uh, and space. So space means we can't have our development right up against it because it needs space to move inland. Um, And sediment means we can't have too many big dams upstream because then we're blocking the natural process of rebuilding yeah. the land yeah, yeah. and um, what you're saying about the wetlands and the birds um, I went up a little tiny hill near the coastal wetlands in San Francisco Bay um, to one of the ancient overlooking one of the ancient marshes and it's so incredible like all of the different colors that you see because um, of the different levels of salinity and the different plants that grow there and then the birds that like those particular plants and it's just this really really beautiful mosaic when you see um a healthy marsh like that it's a very yeah, cool yeah, habitat
0: that's, oh that's fascinating oh yeah, one, you've one, been one more in, point is yeah. that
1: sorry to interrupt aside from the biodiversity that these ecosystems support there's also a significant carbon storage in these ecosystems. You know. Um, mangroves actually store more than temperate forests and um, uh, wetlands, some types of wetlands um, store significantly more. So it's not just protection against climate change when we allow these ecosystems to have space, but also, uh, you know, reducing um, the climate impacts.
0: Yeah. yeah, it's, it's fascinating to see how much uh, carbon uh, wetlands are, are storing because you would expect let's say a forest with fully grown trees that is much higher there must be more carbon in there but it's it's actually not the case and It's one of those, you you keep learning, it's one of those surprising things. So you've been, um, you describe so many places where you have been in in your book. And it's it's very interesting uh, to see all that. So staying in California, because you are, you're on the West Coast. No, you're in British Columbia now, right? Yes, yes. But for, uh, yeah, thinking about at least West Coast U.S. then, um, California and the whole southwestern corner of the U.S., seems to have incredible problems at the moment with the drying up of the, of the Colorado River. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, of course, also a river where we've been interfering in several ways. Uh, we've been interfering uh, with building the dams in the 1930s. Um, and now, indirectly, we're interfering with um, with climate change. And then there's, of course, more downstream, the enormous amount of water use um so that is so how how can we restore a river like the colorado river they they once did only I, I think it's now about six or eight years ago that they once did this surge of water that they let go to so that finally the colorado river could one more time reach the sea of cortez and suddenly this whole dried area came back to life but that was a kind of one-time-off thing how do we how do we solve a problem? like the Colorado River or other Colorado rivers or other rivers like the Colorado River that are that are kind of losing, losing their life, losing, losing the role that they've played in the past. What, what can we do to kind of rewild the rivers in a way?
1: Well, there's a couple of ways I'd like to answer that. Um, first, it's important to remember that um, by, by building dams and creating new reservoirs of water for people, Um, that's really an environmental justice issue. There was a really interesting um, 40-year survey of interventions on rivers around the world, and they found that these kinds of things, like like big dams, increased water availability to 20% of the world's population, but decreased water availability to 24% of the world's population. So, you know, it's not magic water. (laughs) That water is coming from somewhere. It's coming from other ecosystems and other people. And the Colorado is a great example. You know, the farmers in Mexico don't get any water because the U.S. takes it all before it gets there. Um, So I think uh, one answer is that we need to learn to live within our local water means to a, a much greater extent. So the slow water concept, uh, like slow food, is is ideally also local water, um, and you know that's sort of anathema to somebody from California, where we have these major water engineering infrastructure bringing water from the north to the south. But um, you know there's a lot that we can do. To uh, California is a little different than the Southwest. California actually does have enough water. Um, It's just that 80% of it goes to agriculture and of course farming is important, but a lot of that is not, um, you know, it's going to very wealthy agribusinesses and often um, growing water intensive crops to then export to, uh, you know, around the world. So it's not necessarily um, providing food security, it's providing riches to a few people. So, you know, there needs to be, um, I would say, an overhaul of the water rights system, distributing things more equitably. But the bigger message of my book is that in our attempts to control water, we have dramatically um, harmed the natural water cycle. So, you know, 96, 97 percent of all liquid freshwater on Earth is underground. And a lot of places tend to think of groundwater as separate water. So, you know, when there's not enough water in the river, people pump groundwater. Um, But in fact, they're connected. And when you deplete groundwater, um, it cannot push up and supply the surface water. So you're actually further depleting the surface water. And when you levy up a river, um, the water cannot spread out on its floodplains and sink underground and then later supply the surface water. So in all these ways that we're trying to control, um, and, you know, maximize every drop, we're harming the water cycle that instead could better provide water for us. And then in a lot of ways, um, so slow water is what I'm advocating in my book, but a lot of human interventions with water create fast water. So think, yeah, like levying up the river to kind of speed water along to where you want it, or in a city, um, you know, with all the concrete, the water can't go into the ground, so then you have flooding, so then you're trying to (laughs) rush the water out of the city as quickly as possible, but then, um, that water is not there locally when you need it, when things get drier, so the extent to which we can help water move into the ground again, um, it will then be able to uh, feed our surface water systems later in the year. So of course there are places that are drier, there are places that are overbuilt, but you know, that's another aspect of this big reservoir supplying new water is that it, it's actually um, harmful to the people receiving the water as well because it um, starts this cycle of uh, boom and scarcity. <clears throat> so there are many, many examples where um, you know, there's scarcity. They build a big water project, they bring in a lot more water, and then many, many more people move there, many more businesses and development uh, requiring water happens, and then they have scarcity again. It's kind of like um, when you have traffic and you build more lanes, and then that attracts yeah. more people driving, and then you have gridlock again.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's typically, okay. yeah, it's, 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 it's a very good example and very recognizable um do you think that there will be increasingly tensions between people and especially between countries um around water because one one of the examples i was thinking of was the ger dam in, in, in ethiopia where um ethiopia upstream builds a in, an enormous mm-hmm. dam more for electricity reasons than for water i believe but the countries downstream like Sudan, but especially Egypt, are complaining because they say, yeah, that's our water too. And that is, mm-hmm. you, you can imagine all kinds of tensions between upstream and downstream countries. Is is that yeah. something that, that might increase, do you think?
1: Um, yeah, yeah. I don't know if you're familiar with the Pacific Institute. It's a water think yeah. tank based in Oakland, California. They have tracked conflict over water throughout history. Yeah. Peter Geig. And, yeah. yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, um, I know him. Yeah. Yeah. So um, that's, that's an interesting uh, kind of uh, overview to, to look at. And then also sometimes water is being used as a weapon in war, like where people are, are withholding water um, as a pressure point. But one example I write about in my book, um, I went to Iraq's Mesopotamian marshes, which are really an incredible wetland. And, you know, there's a culture of marsh dwellers who have lived on top of the wetlands and in harmony with them for 9,000 years. Uh, So it's really um, an incredible way of life in which they really... Accept the wetlands for what they are uh, and live with them and benefit from the incredible life that they support, as opposed to, uh, (laughs) you know, trying to uh, drain them and then build on top of them. But the biggest threat to the marshes today are upstream dams in Turkey and Iran. And in Turkey, in particular, you know, they have this multi decade project to bring water to their dry uh, east. Um, to make it kind of an agricultural heartland. And Turkey is uninterested in inter country uh, water agreements. And so they're basically just taking the water. And the amount of water coming down the Euphrates and Tigris River into the Mesopotamian marshes has um, dramatically declined as they build more and more giant dams. And yeah. it has, um, it's not just the marshes. Like um, Basra is a city kind of. Uh, you know, closer to the Persian Gulf, um but not that close. you know it's i don't know I don't don't quote me on the distance, but you know it's a ways inland, but in fact, they were having riots a year or two ago um because there was um the the water coming out of their taps was salty, and that's because there wasn't enough fresh water flow coming down to push back the salt, so um you know those kinds of When people don't have water, (laughs) that's a big problem, and it's going to cause conflict for sure.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Turkey is actually one of the three countries in the world that voted against the UN Water Treaty, um, together with China and Rwanda, I think. Um, So it's, uh, and all three of them are upstream countries. So it's, uh, um, this water convention, it took like 25 years to negotiate, and then took 25 years to enter into force, so like 50 years after they started, there was finally this treaty. And then, yeah, there's the, uh, upstream countries are less happy about sharing their water than the downstream countries, well, for for obvious reasons, of course. And I'm representing a downstream country in the <laughs> Netherlands. This is basically a delta where, where we are living. And um, a couple of years ago, I'm not sure whether that actually took place, but there was the idea when I was... Um, still a strategic policy advisor on, in, in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs on on let's say all, uh, global uh, issues. Uh, there was then talk of starting an initiative on a global delta coalition, where all the deltas in the world, like Vietnam and Bangladesh and Netherlands, would, would team up together. I'm not sure whether it actually materialized, but it was one of the ideas we worked on then. Um but um i I think what you're you're working on is is a fascinating topic. It is really timely and I think also your your approach, like yeah, we should listen to the water too. It's not just us being in control of the water, but the water as a will of its own and it, it it's it's uh, we have to work with water. Um I think that's a fascinating message. One example that comes up to my mind is um I'm not sure if you if you follow that, but it's the, I think we call it either the, uh, the sand motor or the water motor. But what, what we do in Netherlands, of course, is, is we, we build dikes to keep the water out. And normally the way it used to be is that our engineers were then calculating where's the best place to build dikes and to put more sand, et cetera, to put the sea out. And what they started a couple of years ago is that, um, yeah, just in front of the, southwest coast of the Netherlands, very close to where the big rivers of Europe are entering the sea. Uh, What they did is just put down an enormous pile of sand, huge, I mean, it was just just put up there by by ships that pump it from very far away. They just put it down there and then they just leave it to the currents of the sea to decide where those currents bring the sand to instead of the engineers calculating where it should be and they call that working with nature instead of working against nature. It's a bit the same principle. Air, mm-hmm. sand is the main player, and not water, but it's it's the interaction between the two, of course. Mm-hmm. And uh, but what motivated you to to write the book? How do you how do you start writing a book about water? What is um what what was the trigger, or did it build upon previous work?
1: Yeah, I'm a journalist, and I've been writing about water for I don't know. 15 years, maybe. Um, and I'm from California, uh, where water is kind of, a uh, ingrained obsession, you know, from a very young age, uh, you're impressed upon that, uh, water is precious and that we have to be careful with it. Um, I also did a lot of, um, camping and hiking when I was a kid. My, that was kind of what my family did. And, um, A friend and I had sort of had a little bet with each other that we would swim in any body of water that we came across. So whether it was like, you know, an alpine lake with ice in the middle or, you know, a big river or, you know, um, the big waves off of Santa Cruz, you know, we were going to go swimming. So, um, yeah, water, I think water is important to everybody. You know, everybody has their their favorite uh, body of water that means something to them emotionally Um, And then as I was reporting on water, I I just started learning more about hydrology, the science of water, and and how water works, and water's various relationships. And I started meeting some of these water detectives who were kind of seeking another path, recognizing that a lot of what we are doing isn't working anymore. Um, And I felt like those stories were not getting the attention that they deserved And they're also not getting the financing that they deserve. Um, You know, it's uh, these kinds of solutions receive a very tiny percentage of of climate um, financing. But, you know, they serve so many purposes of the things because they're focused on systems and how systems work. And that's the reason why a lot of our um, concrete solutions are failing is, um, you know, there's kind of the single minded problem solving like, we want to bring water to this place or, you know, we want to build a dam and create energy. Um, and it's ignoring the complex system that water is with all of its relationships with these other beings. And so that's why we get all these negative unintended consequences. So the extent to which you can make space for those systems to function, you solve myriad problems at once you solve flooding and drought. Um, you know, you provide habitat for the biodiversity that we're, um, really stressing uh, and also the carbon storage element, and one other thing is um, if you have a system that is functioning as it should, it can really maintain itself to a large degree as long as you give it space to do the things it needs. so um, a lot of the the constant expensive maintenance that we do um, you know we don 't necessarily need to do, um, so all of those things were just really inspiring to me, and I wanted to. Uh, you know, try to tell that story in a, in a bigger way that might uh, get more people to pay attention to yeah. these, uh, these approaches. Is
0: this, is this something that requires more government or less government? It seems to be the, a <laughs> bit of both because it should be hands-off because nature is doing its own thing correctly. But on the other hand, you need government to, yeah, to get I there. Think, is that right? I
1: think there's definitely a government and a utility role. Um, So, for government, um, you know, a lot of that has to do with with zoning and development. Even after dramatic floods, you see governments continue to authorize new developments in places that flooded in the last storm um, or the last, you know, big river event. Um, I think of New York after Superstorm Sandy, you know, they've built six or seven new developments in places that flooded 10 years ago. And that happens again and again all around the world. So that's a place where I think um, city governments, you know, can look at that historical ecology of where water wants to go and prioritize those places um, as uh, stormwater capture, really, um, and and uh, health. And then from a utility perspective, uh, you know, utilities, water utilities are required to make investments uh, with some of their fees, and typically that has meant you know, dams and uh, stormwater and that kind of yeah. thing. Um, but Peru is a really e- interesting example. Um, about 10 years ago, they passed this series of laws that requires utilities to take a percentage of their of their bills, of their fees, and invest upstream in what they call natural infrastructure. So um, in some cases, that means these very special high-altitude wetlands called bofidales, or cushion bogs, and those you know absorb the winter rain and hold on to it long into the dry season. And they're also looking at things like um, grazing regulation, you know to make sure that um, cows aren't denuding the grass and you know, harming its ability to hold water. Uh, but also this really cool ancient technique um, that's been practiced for about 1,400 years in the Andes, and um, it's called amunas, which means to retain. And basically they they build these little canals off of the rivers or the the high-altitude streams and take some of the winter flow and direct it to these natural infiltration basins. So then it moves underground, where it moves much more slowly down the mountain, and emerges from these springs um, weeks to months later. And then they can harvest that in the dry season to water their crops. Um, And some researchers documented that this can also benefit cities downstream, like Lima. Lima is a desert city of 11 million people, um, and they rely on the mountains for the water. Uh, So after the farmers take their water, water the crops, then it moves underground once again, ultimately down into the river so um, it's a really elegant way of extending the water into the dry season and now the utilities are investing the the munas are an ancient technology or an ancient strategy and about three villages continue to use them to the present day but they used to exist all across the andes so some of the utility money is going to restore these systems in other places in the andes
0: that's fascinating and that's a really good initiative to to actually give utilities a role in here uh, mm-hmm. which which is uh, which is a wonderful policy it reminds me by the way of um the water utility here that we have I'm, I'm, i often refer to this island and all kinds of things i do so it's this is the first podcast you hear of me you're actually immediately joining um but uh here close by the people that follow me on social media saw the uh, the short video clip i recently posted of this walk in the in the dunes and the forest here but what you and maybe some people may remember the picture of this this beautiful dune lake well actually that lake although it's a natural lake there's there's a handful of them um it's it is used to filter water through the dunes which is a natural process so they're very clean drinking water comes out of it. But what we've been doing now since about past 30 years or so is that we actually add some water to it that we take away from a river which is about 200 kilometers away from here. It comes in a huge pipeline and we add it to it so that we can take more water out but while keeping... Keeping the system in place, this old system of filtering that used the sand to filter water, and mm-hmm. um, it's uh, it's a wonderful system how they do that. So this is kind of an, uh, a a natural system that was there that mm-hmm. we just enhanced a little bit without re- changing the concept, um, and it seems yeah it seems like another project of uh, of of working working with nature. I'm looking at all the um all the listeners. Uh if you have uh questions uh, for Erica please uh, raise your hand this is called call in so you can uh you can call in the show. Um maybe surprising Erica because we were so confused in the starting that I didn't <laughs> warn you but people can ask questions. I see that Evelyn uh has a question. Hi Evelyn please join us.
1: Hi Hello?
0: Can you hear me yeah, we can hear you
1: okay, good. You know I always have questions, right? um I was just wondering about those water detectives that you mentioned a bunch of times, Erica. What's like their job descriptions? What do they do? I have this like picture of so like uh,
0: What do the water detectives do yeah. uh, you you your voice fell away a little bit at least on my side
1: yeah um i think i think i understood the question so water detectives is my term for um ecologists biologists engineers landscape architects urban planners um people but people who are um curious about water who are respecting water who are asking what water wants so there are people um, who work with water in various ways, but are taking kind of a different approach to it. So, um, yeah, I thought uh, I, I was sort of on an exploratory journey when I was reporting this book, um, you know, asking these questions and being curious. Um, and so I felt like uh, it was a little bit of a, you know, Detective <laughs> detective hunts,
0: so that's why I gave them this this name. Yeah. Thank you. It reminds me of a an art project that they did in the city of The Hague where there was a, there used to be an old stream from the dunes that didn't go towards the sea, which you would expect to, but it started on, on the inland side of the dunes. And that stream went through the city of The Hague. And it passes the Peace Palace, the the the, the famous Peace Palace built in uh, before the Second World War already, um, w- which makes The Hague uh, a kind of world legal capital, you could say, and then ends up in the pond next to to Parliament. Now that stream you can't see it anymore because we've paved it over with roads and houses are built, etc. So a couple of years ago, what some artists did uh, in 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 as an, a very original project. Above ground, they made all kinds of signs that were a reminder that this river was still and it, it's still there, this stream, mm-hmm. um, but you can't see it. But they made a reminder to, to remind people that, well, actually, you know, there's there's nature here just just below our feet. Um, mm-hmm. I see the uh, next caller coming in, uh, Joshua. Hi, Joshua.
2: Hello, everyone. Um thanks for letting me on. Uh, so I didn't mean to get on, but, uh, I'm glad that I did a uh, great topic, um, and, uh, very timely. Um, so I've worked with a number of water protectors here, uh, people that have actually been at standing rock and, or are working on climate adaptation plans for tribes, um, here specifically in the Pacific Northwest Cascadia region. Um, I actually sent a couple of those people, uh, uh, a link to this talk. So uh, thank you for having it. I wanted to bring up a couple of things from an energy perspective, um, uh, since uh, that's a very timely issue and water has a lot to do with how we create energy, especially when we go against nature in order to create it. Um, so as we look at not only uh, you know drinking water and its availability or lack thereof in uh, the global South, especially, um, we also look at how we uh, uh, and what projects we support in the global south, and those are usually energy centric um, and uh, first world capitalism uh, centric uh, options. Uh, so we don't necessarily take into account the long term. Um, and this is going to be this diatribe is going to finish up. Um, <laughs> but I'm sitting here at Sacajawea Park uh, right now. I pulled over to have this conversation. And uh, I look at the stewardship that indigenous populations, and tribes, and ancient knowledge have provided us in these areas and then our continued inability to take that into account and look long-term. Um, and I'm probably preaching to the choir here, or I hope that I am, but I wanted to also bring up um, the fact that our nation states are continuing to find money for wars. Um, but they can't find money for us to get our uh, planet straight. Um, also, our governments that we need leadership from. And I put leadership in quotes. I have. Um, uh, also, continue to find and benefit, look for benefits for capitalism around the world. And then when I say leaders, I'm not just talking about American leadership, which there is not. I'm also talking about the other uh, imperialistic countries that you know pursue capitalistic means in order to essentially denigrate most of the population of the planet. Um, so I'm looking at one thing right now that I find very worrisome, and that is crypto technology and its use of energy, its use of water and nations around the world starting to be enamored with bringing that in without any of the caveats around like what has priority, you know, generating a new fiat currency for crypto bros and capitalists around the world or nature. So can we talk about that a little bit? And I'm sorry for running on, but I tend to do this once I get to. Oh, that
0: normally never happens, Joshua. Thanks so much for for this question. So, if I if I summarise a bit, you you mentioned Bell's uh, energy as well as uh, um, the, the whole uh, uh, crypto uh, mania at the moment. So, for it's the question is about setting priorities between all kinds of important things for us that governments have to choose. Uh, from, and a lot of them is modern technology, um, but uh, we then often forget about nature and water. Is that, Mm -hmm. so So, where are you on this, Erica?
1: Well, um, yeah, I agree. (laughs) Um, uh, One person in my book, um, uh, an indigenous water protector, called this practice of, you know, us or, you know, Western countries going and kind of forcing people to build dams uh, for and go into great debt, often overriding their more sustainable ways of living with water. Um, She called this hydro-colonialism, which I think is a great term. And um, I think, you know, I I talk in my book about uh, some of the problems with capitalism and and its incentives. And, you know, one of the and and our basic um, economic system, you know, that's predicated upon eternal growth, which, of course, is impossible when we live on a finite planet. Um, And part of it is that externalities and ecosystem services are not um, brought into our economic system. So, um, you know, of course, we rely on nature for generating rain for Cleaning and storing water um, for providing nurseries for baby fish that we eat, or pollinators that um, make our food possible, and all of those things are taken for granted and not accounted for in our economic system. Similarly, um, various ways in which um, you know industry pollutes, those costs are borne by the environment and. The public at large, and not by the people who are making money off of it, and so this is a key way that you know the rich get richer and the poor get poorer, and the the other than human uh beings who uh, don't have a voice that we listen to um suffer so yeah, I mean, I think crypto is just another. Facet of these sort of misaligned incentives. So, I do think that we need a way to acknowledge these things. And earlier, when I was talking about the single minded problem solving, which leads to people making decisions about water, you know, they have 150 years of scientific studies showing, you know, we do X and we get Y. But, um, when we do these analysis, we often don't account for support for biodiversity, for carbon storage, et cetera. So we definitely need um, to, in our uh, scientific studies and support and decision-making, um, try to account for all of these other benefits. Um, and I think we've pushed these systems to the breaking point now. Um, so if we don't start paying attention to them, and trying to account for them and trying to care for them uh, you know things things are going to get worse yeah yeah
0: i'm so much with you all this i see two more questions and i see the clocks that we're already uh five minutes to the full hour which okay. i think would be a good good limit i don't know what your agenda is but i know that my agenda is that some things are uh, other things are going on and i'm sure that's same for the listeners so um, I see two more questions. Uh, first, uh, Sharon, who I know lives in Arizona, talking about water and drought, um, she says, uh, "Erika, do you know or do you believe in water witchers uh, that can find underground aquifers using non-traditional methods like walking over the ground and then feeling the water underground and then pointing to the spot? Uh, because uh, she said we used one of these methods on our farm when deciding where to drill a well. Is it nonsense, or is it science, or is it a bit of both?
1: Well, uh, it probably won't surprise you to hear that the the many hydrologists and hydrogeologists that I interviewed for this book say that it's nonsense. (laughs) And they've convinced me. Um, Basically... There is a lot of groundwater, right? The, the, the groundwater is 97% of all liquid water on Earth. So there's a lot of it down there. So the chances of a water witcher finding a spot that indeed has water below it are pretty good. <laughs> so that's, that's basically the gist of it.
0: Yeah, interesting uh, to hear. I see, um, and again, I'm in full agreement. (laughs) And um, uh, I see a comment from, and a question as well. Uh, I see two thank yous, uh, both from Joshua and uh, from Sharon. Uh, But still, Sharon has her water, so she's very happy with it, whatever way she got it, I'm sure. Yes. (laughs) Um, And then there's the the other question from Evelyn, who has been, and that's a really good question to and with because that should be my question where can you where can you buy your book because we're all very interested now so evelyn is saying uh, the book has a usa and canada edition and there's also a uk and commonwealth edition what is the difference
1: uh, and also tell
0: us where can we order the book
1: okay <laughs> thank you for that question um the north america edition is published in the united states and it will be available in the us and canada Um, and then the UK edition is published in the UK. They have the right to publish in 55 Commonwealth countries, but I don't know the extent to which they will do. Um, but I would think, you know, if you were in Europe, you could order online, uh, the UK edition. I know people in Australia have ordered the UK edition. Um, so... I have links to all of the places you can buy both editions on my website, which is slowwater.world. Uh, three W's, slowwater.world. And um, yeah, the the UK edition, um, you know, it's Amazon, Barnes & Noble, indie public, publications, or indie book publishers. Um, but all those links you can find on slowwater.world.
0: Wonderful. Slowwater.world. World, so that is that's really good to to remember. I have had the pleasure of uh, having seen the book. I couldn't read everything, but I've 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 read parts of it, and I really really enjoyed it. And I can tell you that I've read a lot of environmental books. Someday I'm gonna take you uh, on a tour through my bookshelves uh, when I'm back <laughs> in Canada. I'll tell you how many environmental books there are but this is um, uh, not only highly interesting but it's also highly readable and that is the advantage when uh, journalists and science come together that always creates the best books and this is typically one of those examples i can i can highly recommend it i would like to thank all of you that are listening i'd like to thank you for your patience in um, being a bit slow uh, in the in the startup we had some technical problems and then my computer crashed uh, which is only the first time in all the podcasts that I did uh, where this happened. I would like to thank those that asked uh, questions. Uh, Joshua and Evelyn and uh, Sharon uh, are the three names that pop up in my mind when I think about the questions that were asked. I would especially like uh, to thank Erica Geis uh, for joining us here. This is a fantastic subject. We could talk about it for ages. And actually, I would hope that somewhere in autumn uh, I could have you back in this show. But we will talk that about wonderful. that in a moment. Yeah. Stay on the Zoom call. I'm going to close the um, uh, the, the call in app, uh, but, but please stay so we got a few more message uh, minutes uh, together. Okay. Thanks, everybody, guys. Before you leave, um, I'm still. I'll be back likely on. Um, on sunday uh, at the normal time but the normal time has changed a bit in the past probably like uh, 10 pm european time which will be about 4 pm eastern time new york time Um, but i have a dinner that evening and i'll be in bonn in germany so i'm not sure if i can get away there in time Uh, i guess it should work but maybe it will be a little bit later so Uh, Thanks so much for listening. Hope to uh, see or at least hear uh, you again on, uh, on this Sunday. Okay, bye guys.